would be great. All right, so John chapter 2. We'll be reading from verse 13 to the end. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the things that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and he knew, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Well, there's certain things in our life that maybe kind of trigger an anger response in us. Sometimes those things are little things, sometimes those are bigger things, and we all have kind of different things that kind of press our buttons that get, up, get us upset. And like I said, sometimes those things, they're not big issues, maybe things that shouldn't upset us, but for whatever reason, they do. For me, one of those things is when I'll be sitting on the couch next to my wife, and my wife will take her feet and put them across my lap. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, this drives me crazy. And so I don't do feet. I, I, don't, know what, I don't know what the thing is. I just don't like her feet being across my lap. I know it's a stupid thing, it's silly, and so I'll be sitting there with her legs across me, I'll be like, serenity now, serenity now. And then she'll start moving her feet, foot, just a gentle, just a little, and then it will just drive me over the edge. I don't know why I get upset about that, it's a small thing, doesn't matter. But for whatever reason it does. But then I repay her, not purposely of course, but I repay her by leaving my socks and clothing everywhere strewn about the house, under the coffee table, underneath the couch, underneath the dining room table. And so she has plenty of things that are probably more real things to be frustrated with me about. You know, but there's, there's different things that kind of get our blood moving, that's, that, that make us upset. You know, and, and those are, you know, kind of minor, silly things, at least from, you know, from my perspective. But... There's other things that are maybe a little bit more serious. You know, maybe for some people, it's money that gets us upset. You know, how we spend our money, or if the government takes away, you know, too much of our money, money is that trigger that makes us upset. Some of us is sports. You know, you hear the reputation about hockey moms, and I think it's actually pretty accurate. I grew up playing hockey, and you'd have these parents, not just moms, dads too, dads were probably worse, but you'd have these parents, and, you know, they were kind of respectable people. They were nice people outside of hockey and, you know, had good jobs. And then they would come to the hockey game, and they'd be swearing at the refs, yelling at the players who happened to be, like, five years old. 
And for whatever reason, sports, specifically hockey in that case, was that trigger that made them angry for whatever reason. For some, like my mother, it's pets. My mother is a very kind, sweet person. But if someone is not treating an animal right, she becomes a completely different person. That's her trigger that makes her upset. We all have different issues like that, some of them big, some of them small. And of course we know as believers, I don't believe it's wrong to be angry, that initial emotion to be angry, it's what we do with that anger. Do we allow it to control us, allow it to dictate our behavior, and then do something that we shouldn't be doing? Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. And so that anger isn't wrong necessarily. It's what we do with that, and if we're prone to anger. But there's different things that upset each of us differently. And in the passage that we're looking at today, Jesus has kind of a trigger point. We experience something that kind of upsets Jesus, really upsets Jesus. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. The Passover was one of the premier feasts in ancient Judaism. And of course, the Passover was the celebration of God passing over the firstborn when uh, God delivered the Israelites from Egypt. Remember the story about how God sent these plagues on the Egyptians, and the last one was the plague of the death of the firstborn because the Egyptians wouldn't let the Israelites out of slavery. And, and God passed over the Israelite households and, and, and spared them and then brought them out into the Promised Land. So that's the, the Passover celebration. It was a huge deal. And Israelites were required to attend the Passover celebration if they lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem. And so you have all these Israelites going to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. It was also kind of a pilgrimage event. Uh, all the ancient Jews uh, were tried to make it to Jerusalem at, at least one point in their life for the Passover. And so this was a big event. There's probably, uh, some scholars estimate that there was over 2 million people in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple, and he makes a whip from cords, and then he starts whipping the merchants and the money changer and drives them right out of the temple. Now, this image of Jesus driving, us, driving the money changers and the merchants out of the temple doesn't really compute with our image of what we think Jesus is like. I did a Google image search for Jesus, and this is the picture that came up. You know, it's Jesus who is meek and mild. Jesus with not a wrinkle on his face. He looks like us. He's calm. He wouldn't hurt a fly. That's the image that we think of when we think of Jesus. But we don't, when, we don't, when we think about Jesus, we don't think about the Jesus in this picture here. Jesus who is angry. Jesus who is violent. In our culture, we like that first image. That's the first image that pops up when you say Jesus and put Jesus in the Google. We don't think about or we don't like the second image. English writer Dorothy Sayers puts it this way. She says, The dogma we find so dull, this terrifying drama which God is the victim and hero, if this is dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? The people who hanged Christ never to do them justice accused him of being a bore. 
On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We're very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as, fitting a household, as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Those who knew him, however, objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. Jesus that we see in pictures, meek and mild, of course we know that many times he was meek and mild. It's not that that was wrong. We see that in the crucifixion, Jesus was whipped. Jesus was brutalized. They, they scorned him. It says in Isaiah that he didn't open his mouth. He didn't even defend himself. So he was meek. He was mild. He was lowly in spirit. He was kind. He was patient. But he also could be angry. So what, take, what, what, what would it take for the Son of God who is so loving, so mild, so kind, what would cause him to become so angry that he formed a whip and threw out the money changers and the merchants? Well, in order to understand this passage, I think we need a little bit of background. So when the Israelites would go into Jerusalem, there were a couple things that they were, were required to do. The first thing was to offer sacrifices. And so these merchants often kind of provided a service for the worshipers. It'd almost be like if you went to the beach. I know that's a hard thing to imagine right now. But if you went to the beach and there was a little hut there where they were selling water and sunscreen and things you might need for the beach. In the same way, the people of Israel needed sacrifices. They probably didn't want to carry them, especially if they were coming from uh, the surrounding nations. They didn't want to bring the animals with them, and so they could go right up to the temple and purchase the animals for the sacrifice. Second thing they were required to do was they were required to pay the temple tax. And the temple tax, was, it was required that it would be paid in the Tyrian shekel. And the reason it was required that it would be in the Tyrian shekel was because that was the currency that had the most silver content. And so again, the money changers performed a helpful service. When the people of Israel would go up to the Passover, they could exchange their money and get the Tyrian shekel and fulfill their duty. So what they're doing is not in essence wrong. They're, they're providing a service for the people of Israel. So inherently, it's not wrong necessarily to be selling animals, to be changing money. There's something more. So what is Jesus so upset about? I think there's just two things. The first thing is that the merchants, are, uh, money, merchants and money changers were taking advantage of the people. And in essence, they're putting up barriers to the worship of God. Now, to understand the full story, we need to look at the other Gospels. And we're talking about the Gospels. We're talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the, the, story of the, account, the stories of the accounts of Jesus. And uh, those four writers are kind of like reporters telling the story from different perspective. And some, uh, some of those authors include some details and, and not others. And it's not that one is wrong and one is right. It's just different perspective and, and uh, kind of what they wanted to communicate, what their aim was. And so in the book of Matthew, we see something we don't see in the book of John. And Matthew says this in Matthew 21, 13. He, speaking of Jesus, said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you, have make, make, you make it a den of robbers. So it's clear from this verse 
that these merchants and money changers, they're not simply offering a service, but they're taking advantage of the people. It would almost be like if, say, you went to a Bills game, another thing that's hard to imagine right now, but say you went to a Bills game, and it's September, and it happens to be a really hot and muggy day. And you're sitting in the seat, and the sun is shining down on you, and after the first quarter, you get really, really hot and thirsty. And so you go to the concession stand, and you ask for a bottle of water, and how much is that bottle of water? It's like, I don't know, I haven't been to a Bills game in a long time, but six, seven, eight dollars for a bottle of water. And what do you do? You probably just pay it because what else are you going to do? You're sitting there in the hot sun. You can't go anywhere else. They know that. You can't go to the 7-Eleven. You can't go to Sam's Club. If you want water, you have to get it there. And I think that's kind of what's happening here in the temple. These merchants, they know they have the people. They know they need sacrifices, and so they would charge exorbitant rates. William Barclay estimates or suggests that the prices inside of the temple for doves specifically could be 16 times more than doves that were purchased outside of the temple. He suggests also that they had what were called temple inspectors or sacrifice inspectors. And uh, the people of Israel, when they brought the sacrifices, they were supposed to be pure and undefiled, and so they would have to pay these temple inspectors a fee to inspect their sacrifice to make sure it was pure and undefiled. And he suggests that what would often happen is almost always if someone purchased the sacrifice outside of the temple complex and brought it in, then they would reject it. And so in essence, the people had to purchase these animals inside of the temple complex if they wanted the sacrifice to be offered. And if they wanted it to be accepted. There's also reports, too, of uh, the money changers charging exorbitant uh, exchange rates to exchange the money. And so, in one sense, we see this as kind of defrauding one's neighbor, taking advantage of the situation. But even more than that, it's the people, uh, the, these merchants, these uh, money changers, and the religious authorities that are keeping people from worshiping God. They're putting up barriers to the worship of God. I mean, it would be almost like if, if someone was standing at the door of the church, said, oh, hey, where would you like to sit today? If you, you, know, you want to sit up here, this is $250, $250. If you want to sit in the middle, it's $150. You want to sit in the back, it's $100. They're putting up a barrier to the worship of God. The Israelites who wanted to worship God, who wanted to follow the law and do what the law required, they had this barrier in that they were prevented from doing that. I mean, you imagine someone who was really poor. They wouldn't be able to afford a sacrifice. They might have thought to themselves that they, they couldn't even enter into the temple. They couldn't even enter into God's presence because they didn't have enough money. This enrages Jesus. That people, the merchants, the money changers, are putting up barriers so that people cannot worship God. But there's a second problem, and the second problem is the location. They're in the wrong place. So let's, for argument, say that the merchants were providing a reasonable and fair service. Let's say they were providing sacrifices at a reasonable rate. There's still a problem. They're in the wrong place. Jesus says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. See, due to the money changers, the merchants, the religious leaders, the, the, fest, the uh, temple has become a festival. 
The temple has become more of a circus or a fair than a place of worship. It has become a sham. The person who's honestly seeking after God, who wants to worship Him in truth, cannot do that. The religious establishment is preventing them from doing that. Barclay talks about it being worship without reverence. There's no reverence for the holiness of God. It's a place of commerce, a place of busyness. Just like you'd go to the county fair. It was not a place of worship. But in addition to these things, there's another problem. The place where they set up their booths, their money-changing booths and merchant booths, was in the court of the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles were people from the nations, anybody other than Jews, and so they were not permitted to go into the temple except for in the place called the court of the Gentiles. So you imagine someone from another nation coming to the temple to worship. They can't worship because there's merchants, there's money changers in the place where they're supposed to be praying to God. And so they're not only putting up barriers for Israelites who want to worship God, but they're also putting up barriers for the nations who might want to come and worship God. And that's probably why Jesus says in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations? He put all this together, and the worship of God here in the temple is a sham. The Israelites would have taken great pride in their temple. Great pride in their religious establishment. And I, I can imagine if you know, there were such a thing, if there was a Jerusalem tour guide saying Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, the things that this Jerusalem tour guide might show Jesus. The tour guide might come up to Jesus and say, hey, let me show you this temple. Look at these beautiful pillars. Look at how Herod rebuilt this beautiful temple to honor God. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it gorgeous? The time and the money that went into this. The tour guide say, well, look at all these people. They must be pleasing to your father having two million plus people come to the Passover each year. Look at all these people. Look at all these sacrifices. Look at all these animals that are slaughtered. Look at all this money that's coming in and how we have these money changers that exchange it so we have all this silver so we can upkeep the temple and we can make further improvements. Look at all this stuff, Jesus. Imagine the tour guide saying, so what do you think, Jesus? What do you think about all this? And I imagine Jesus looking at him and saying, I absolutely hate it. I absolutely hate it because this was a sham. The temple was more about a festival and a performance than about the worship of God. I think it might be similar to what God told Israel in the book of Amos. Amos chapter 5, verses 20, uh, verse 21 to 24 says this, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. See, the religious authorities and these people in Jerusalem thought that it was all about the performance. They thought it's all about the sacrifice, it's all about the ritual, when all the time Jesus or the Father wanted a relationship with them. 
So they make it about something that it's not, and God is not interested in our religious rituals. He's interested in a relationship with us. And any rituals should come out of those, that relationship with God. He's interested in our hearts. And so now we see clearly why Jesus is so angry. He's angry that there's barriers that are being put up. These merchants, these money changers are keeping Israelites from being able to worship God. They're keeping the nations from being able to worship God. And the whole establishment is really more about the ritual than it is about the relationship. So that is pretty clear. But what does that mean for us today? What does it mean for us? We don't have merchants that are in the back selling sacrifices. We don't even have a temple. Jesus is our temple, the place where God dwells. So how does this apply to us today? Well, I think it causes us to ask ourselves two questions. These questions can be pretty incisive. The first, are we putting up barriers to the worship of God? Now, there's some overt ways that we can do that. We can do that maybe shunning somebody who is new, some maybe who doesn't look like us or acts differently than we do. And so there's overt ways of doing that. But there's also some ways of doing that maybe that we don't think about. That we can actually prevent people from worshiping God by the way that we live our lives. The 19th century clergyman Henry Venn once said this. He said, a feeble, a feeble nominal Christianity is the great obstacle to the conversion of the world. So are there things in our life that are keeping us from the worship of God? Are there things in our life that people would look at us from the outside and say, yeah, I know that person's a Christian, or they, they claim to be a Christian, but he or she acts just like I do. They don't have any hope. They don't have any joy. They look just like I do. I mean, if we look exactly like the world does, then why would anyone want to become a Christian? They already have what they need. Our lives can either draw people to the worship of God or repel them away from the worship of God. In a recent book, Phil Cook and Jonathan Bach asked significant questions like this. They say, why did the early church succeed where we are failing? How did they transform the Western world in such a relatively short time? They did it because they did the things that baffled the Romans. The early church didn't picket. They didn't boycott. They didn't gripe about what was going on in their culture. They just did the things that astonished the Romans. They took in their abandoned babies. They helped the sick and wounded. They restored dignity to the slaves. They were willing to die for what they believed. After a while, their actions so softened the hearts of the Romans that they wanted to know more about these Christians, uh, who these Christians were and who was the God they represented. The way we live our life either draws people to the worship of God or repels them away from the worship of God. So the, that's the first question. The second question, do we have a passion for the worship of God? We see in this passage that Jesus has a great passion for the worship of God. We see that he wouldn't do this. He wouldn't throw out the money changers and the merchants if he didn't care about the worship of God. When the disciples see what he does, they, they uh, note a passage, they were reminded of a passage in Psalm chapter 69 where David says, zeal for your house has consumed me. And they apply this to Jesus. And we know that as the Son of God, zeal for God's worship, for God's house, is eventually, literally, to consume Jesus. That Jesus is going to go to the cross so that worshipers might be created. So that we might have a relationship with God. 
so that through Jesus, the true temple, we might experience life. And so Jesus has a passion for the worship of God, and it leads him to the cross. We serve a God who's filled with zeal, or enthusiasm, or passion. A.W. Tozer once said this, God dwells in a state of perpetual enthusiasm. He's delighted with all that is good and lovingly concerned about all that is wrong. He pursues his labor always in a fullness of holy zeal. No wonder the Spirit came at Pentecost as the sound of a rushing mighty wind and sat in tongues of fire on every forehead. Whatever else happened at Pentecost, one thing that cannot be missed by the most casual observer was the sudden upsurging of moral enthusiasm. Those first disciples burned with a steady inward fire. They were enthusiastic to the point of complete abandon. I truly believe that this is the greatest problem in the church in America today. It's that we lack zeal, we lack enthusiasm as the church in the United States. See, I think what we're enthusiastic about is, is not the things of God. See, I think we think of our relationship with God as kind of an add-on to the things that we are really enthusiastic about. We're enthusiastic about our money and our actions show it. We're enthusiastic about our children and our action shows it. We're enthusiastic about our particular political candidate. We're enthusiastic about our views of the world. We're enthusiastic about the Buffalo Bills. We're enthusiastic about all these different things, but are we passionate about the worship of God? Are we passionate about, a th about the things that matter to God's heart? Why is it? And it's not just in this church, any church I've ever been a part of, the same thing is true. Why is it if you have an outreach event and you have free food and a band and all of these fun things, you get dozens or hundreds of people show up, and then you have a prayer service and there's two people. It's because we don't have a passion for the worship of God. We don't have a passion for God's glory. Why is it is that someone, if someone offered us free tickets to the Bills game, if we could go, or free uh, tickets or a free gift card to go out to eat or to a movie or a free gift card to a store, we would accept it in just a moment. We wouldn't hesitate. And yet the God of the universe each day invites us to a relationship with Him. And what do we do? We say, oh, I'm too busy. I don't have enough time. If we believe the truth of the gospel, we should be passionate about it. Because we have the greatest news imaginable. That we can have a relationship with God. That we can live with God forever. We can have purpose and hope. And that should change everything we do. We have the hope that one day Christ is going to come back. He's going to make all things right. He's going to have a new heaven and a new earth. We're not, we can't even comprehend what is in store for us as believers. We have such good news in store for us. We have so many reasons to hope, and yet we're not passionate about it. The world is more zealous than we are. See, the world is zealous about things that are not good, that are not of God. We have the right things that we believe, but we're apathetic about them. There's a story that's told about the English actor MacReady. And one day, a clergyman came up to him and said, 
I have a question. I was wondering if you could explain something to me. And this actor said, well, I, uh, I don't know if I could ever explain anything to you, Pastor. And the pastor says, well, I'm confused because each night you go out and you say things that are false. You're an actor. And yet you get hundreds of people to come out every night. And I preach the truth, and then it's unchangeable truth, and I don't get any crowd at all. McCready's answer was insightful. He said, this is quite simple. I can tell you the difference between us. He said, I present my fiction as though it were truth. You present your truth as though it were fiction. I think that as believers, sometimes we can do that. We believe the right things, but we don't act as if they change our life. We don't act as if they matter. We don't have passion for the worship of God. The thing that drew me to become a pastor was that my pastor growing up had a passion for God's Word. And when he spoke, it felt like, not just like he was giving a message or he was speaking as a historian, it seemed as if it was actually real. It seemed as if it actually made a difference. Passion makes a difference. And as we're living our life, do we live as if the gospel actually matters? Do we live as if Jesus actually does change everything? Because he does. But do we live as if that's true? Passion makes a difference. I mean, you think about, you know, the Bills and think about Josh Allen and say they're playing a really good team, the Chiefs or the Steelers or, or whoever. Imagine he goes before the team, before the game, and says, well, the other team's pretty good. Um, I, I don't know if we're going to win for sure or not. I mean, we have some good players, I guess, but... I guess it doesn't really matter after all anyways. I mean, do you think that would make his players play hard for him? Do you think that would make his linemen uh, work hard to, to block all the people, who are, you know, the defensive linemen? Probably not. But what if he said, hey, I know that team is good. I know they're undefeated, but we're also first in our division. We've got a good team, and we're going to go beat them, and we're going to be first in our division. It's a different mindset. Passion makes a difference. Dwight L. Moody was in London during one of his famous evangelistic tours, and uh, there were three clergymen that came to him, and they were amazed at this uneducated American evangelist who had so many people who were saved under his ministry, so many people coming to his crusades. And so they went there to try to kind of find out his secret. And so Moody called each of them up separately to the, the hotel window where they were. High, uh, it was a high-rise hotel. He tells them to look out the window. And Moody asked him, what do you see? You know, they had varying responses what they saw. Then Moody started visibly weeping. Tears ran down his cheeks. And they said to him, what do you see, Mr. Moody? He said, I see countless thousands of souls that will one day spend eternity in hell if they do not find the Savior. Moody had a different perspective. He saw the world in a different light. Moody believed the things that he preached. He didn't just say them, he believed them in the core of who he was. Do we believe the things that we preach? 
Do we believe truly in our heart of hearts the things that we read in our Bible? Do we have a zeal for God? A zeal for souls to be saved? A zeal to worship God? The good news is we don't have to work up that zeal. We don't have to work up that passion and say to ourselves, oh, I need to be more passionate. I need to find some passion. See, if we see how great our God is, if we get a vision of his glory, we are going to be incredibly passionate about him. Because we serve a great and glorious and mighty God that is beyond compare. And all we need to do is cry out to God and beg him and say, God, show me your glory. Maybe it's committing time to spend with him because we can't see his glory unless we're spending time with him. And then as we spend time with him, maybe at the beginning it's like a kind of a ritual where we have to kind of push ourselves to do it. But then after a while we're like, wow. He is a great and mighty God. And maybe it, becomes, it comes to a point where it's not like, oh, I should be doing this, but I want to do this because my God is so great. My God is so mighty, and I want to know him more. So two questions. Are we putting up barriers to the worship of God? Do we have a passion for the worship of God? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you, didn't, you took away all barriers to the worship of God. That you came in your zeal, and that zeal consumed you. That you went to the cross so that we might become worshipers of you. So that we could have a relationship with you. So that we could enter into the Holy of Holies. So that we could come to you with our requests. That we could come to you with our concerns, knowing that you hear us. We thank you for that love, that dedication, that zeal that you had in our hearts. Lord, please give us a vision of your glory. Give us a vision of your greatness. Help us to be passionate about your name and your renown. Help us to be passionate about our, about our worship of you. Help us to be passionate about our quiet time passionate about all the things that break your heart, Lord. Because we know that you are a great and mighty God. We know that you are worthy of all glory and praise and that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess before your throne. Lord, help us to see that today. And help us to live our lives in accordance with that. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.